Our sermon text is from Romans 8. I'm going to read verses 29 and 30, only preach on verse 29. This is God's infallible word, so give it your ear. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also declared righteous. And those he declared righteous, he also glorified. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, bless this Lord's day, the reading of your word, the proclamation of your word, and the hearing of your word. For Christ's sake, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Studying Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, which is what we'll be doing, Lord willing, this week and next time, is like climbing up to the top of a tall lookout tower that's been built on top of a a high mountain. When you get to the top of the tower, above the clouds, you, you can see in every direction for a very, very long way. At the bottom of the mountain, you can't see very far. You can't see anything above the clouds, and, and you, can't, you can't see what's on the other side of the mountain or the mountain range. But when you get to the top, it feels like you can see forever in every direction. If you've ever been on a high point like that, or if you've ever maybe been in a plane, where an airplane, where you, where you can look to your left out of one window and to your right out of another window on a clear day, and you know the fresh, then you know the fresh perspective that it provides. When we climb to the top of verses 29 and 30, and turn our heads to the left, we can see all the way back into eternity past. And when we turn our heads to the right, we can see all the way forward into eternity future. When we look to our left in eternity past, we see God's foreknowledge and predestination. When we look to the right, we turn our heads to the right, we can see God's glorification of all of his children in eternity future. And this view of God's saving actions in eternity past and eternity future gives us a fresh perspective on God's saving actions in this world, in history, in our time, from creation to new creation, which is just a tiny dot on the timeline of God's redemptive activities. Now, before we ascend the tower and, and take in this eternal view, let's remind ourselves of what Paul has taught us in verse 28, which we talked about, which we studied last week. He started this paragraph in verse 28 with a confident statement uh, that's familiar to probably everyone in this room, every believer. 
And we know, Paul says, that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. This, this verse doesn't mean that everything will turn out okay in this life. It doesn't mean that everything is in itself good. Paul's not promising that Christians will have better circumstances, more comfort, less unpleasantness. The, the promise is that all your suffering will work together for your good. Not for your earthly good, but for your heavenly good. Not for your temporal good, but for your eternal good. Your present distresses and afflictions feel like they're destroying you. But the guarantee from God is that they're moving you forward on the path toward eternal glory on the right. Paul's confidence in verse 28, that all things work together for our good, is based on the certainty of our redemption. A redemption that began before time, when God foreknew us. A redemption that will be perfected beyond time, when God glorifies us. Paul expresses his certainty of God's good purpose for us. He lays it out in verses 29 and 30, which contain what countless interpreters, preachers, theologians have referred to as, maybe you've heard this, the golden chain or the golden chain of redemption, the golden chain of salvation. The chain in these two verses has five links, and, and, and not one of them is a weak link. That the chain extends from eternity to eternity, and two of the links in the middle take place in the present age. As I reread verses 29 and 30, notice how Paul emphasizes God's activity here. It is God doing everything in this golden chain of salvation for those he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he, God, the father predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also declared to be righteous. And those he declared righteous, he also glorified. At no point do we do anything in this chain. Our glorious certainty in this chain is that everyone who participates in the first link will participate in the final link. 100% of the people God foreknew, he predestined. 100% of the people God predestined, he calls to faith. 100% of the people God calls are declared righteous. They're justified. By faith. And 100% of the people God declares righteous, he will glorify. No one is added along the way, and no one is subtracted along the way. No one gets picked up along the way. No one gets lost along the way. The group God began with in his foreknowledge is the group he will end up with in glory. And so every single person who was foreknown by God, will be glorified by God. And 
It's also true then that no one will be glorified in the end whom God did not foreknew, uh, foreknow in eternity past. We'll see as we study these verses that the, the golden chain is at every turn and in every way all of God has nothing to do, this text has nothing to do with anything that we do. We contribute nothing to the process Paul outlines here in these two verses. From start to finish, from top to bottom, it's God's work of grace. And so if you're, if you're involved in this chain, if you've been saved, you've been caught up into something much bigger than you. You've been included in a plan that's infinitely older than you. You've been swept up into a loving, gracious, saving purpose that's beyond your comprehension. Verse 28 raises a question, uh, a, a question that Paul goes on to answer. And the question is this. What is the purpose? What's the purpose that Paul mentions at the end of verse 28? He says that believers, all believers have been called according to God's purpose. Well, what is it? What, what, what's the purpose according to which God's working everything together for our good? The answer is in verses 29 and 30, which trace God's eternal purpose for you, for me, for every believer through five stages, five unbreakable links. And so let's look at two of those today in verse 29. First, he refers to those he foreknew. And so if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, united to Christ, if you've been born again, then God foreknew you before time. Now, when we look at the word foreknew or foreknowledge, it appears to have a pretty straightforward meaning, right? You know, it's kind of got two halves, and if we break it down, it means to know something beforehand, beforehand, before it happens. And some have concluded from this that God, from eternity past, looked down through the tunnel of time, and when he looked into the future, he saw who would believe in Christ, he saw all who would choose to be saved, and those were the ones that he predestined to be saved, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's how, that's how many have dealt with the doctrine of election and predestination in the Bible. But there are, but there are several problems with this view, and I'll briefly just overview five of them. The first problem is that God never learns anything. God doesn't need to look down the corridors of time to see what you or I would do. He already knows. He, he's never looked into the future to learn anything about anything or anyone. And that's because there's no knowledge outside of God for him to look at. It's, it's the pagans and the secularists who believe 
that God or the gods can gain knowledge that they didn't have or he didn't have before. But according to Scripture, God, God never learned anything. He's never learned anything. And he never will learn anything. And here's the second problem. If God decided to save us because he looked ahead and saw that we were going to have faith, then think about that. The author of my salvation would be me rather than God. The, the basis of my redemption in some way would be my merit, something in me that was good rather than God's mercy alone. But the whole point of this passage and a major idea in Romans and a main theme of the Bible is that salvation is of the Lord. We're not the ones who initiate our salvation. God is. Paul and all of Scripture emphasize God's initiative of grace and our redemption. So to say God chose us because we first chose him would undermine Paul's belief that God does all the work in this golden chain of salvation. Here's the third problem. If the foreknowledge of God was his foresight into the future, his looking through that tunnel of time to see who would respond to the gospel with faith, well, let's think about God, what God would see if he were to do that. All God would see is that no one would choose to believe. He wouldn't see a single soul trusting in Christ. He would only see people who've been so radically corrupted by sin that they're unable to make any movement at all toward God. He would see depraved hearts that love what they should hate, that hate what they should love. He would see people whose Wills are in bondage to sin. People who have eyes but cannot see, who have ears but cannot hear. In Romans 3, Paul summarizes what God would see, what God would have seen if he had looked down the corridors of time and examined all the descendants of Adam. Paul writes, There is none righteous, not even one, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Romans 3, 10 to 12. God would have seen what Isaiah saw in chapter 53 of his, his book. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one, everyone has turned to his own way, Isaiah 53, 6. The fourth problem with this view is that Paul doesn't say foresaw. He, he doesn't say God foresaw anything. It, it only says that he foreknew. And, and we need to be good students of the Bible, paying close attention to the words that are actually on the page. This verse says nothing about God looking ahead and foreseeing future events or circumstances or choices. The, the word is foreknew. Paul's speaking of God's foreknowledge, not his foresight. And God's foreknowledge in verse 29 
is of people. Do you see that? It's a personal activity. Paul isn't saying that God foreknew events, actions, decisions. The text says he foreknew people, individuals, you, me. He foreknew all he would save. And that takes us to the fifth and final problem, which, which really brings us to the crux of the matter. It has to do with the, with the meaning of this word, the meaning of foreknowledge or foreknew. It, it means much more than to know ahead of time, to know before, beforehand. It, it expresses more than just mental awareness of some future fact. When God knows a person in Scripture, He loves them. And watches over them and shows special regard for them. Psalm 1 6 says that God knows the way of the righteous. Psalm 37 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. Jesus says in John 10 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. 1 Corinthians 8 3, but the one who loves God, is known by God. In Exodus 33, 17, God told Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because you have found favor with me and I know you by name. To be known by God is to be loved and favored by God. When God says to Israel in Hosea 13, verse 5, I knew you in the wilderness. He means that he cared for Israel in the wilderness in that context. And God told Israel in Amos 3, 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Israel was the only nation God loved and entered into covenant with. In other words, the only nation he knew. A familiar passage in Matthew 7 illustrates well what it means to be known by God. Starting in verse 21 of Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Verse 23 then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What does it mean for the Lord of glory, who always knows everything, to tell people on Judgment Day, I didn't know you? It means that he never had a saving relationship with them. They didn't know him, and he didn't know them. In both the Old and the New Testaments, to be known by God is to be loved by Him. Therefore, to be known beforehand by God is to be loved beforehand by God. God's foreknowledge of you is His sovereign, distinguishing, saving, special, covenantal love that He had toward you before time began. One of my favorite verses where this 
this word is used and where this meaning is made clear is 1 Peter 1.20, which says that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Before he created anything, God the Father foreknew the God-man, Jesus Christ, his own son. God loved Christ in eternity past. And Paul uses the same word here in Romans 8.29 about believers, which means that God loved you even as he loved Christ before the foundation of the world. The implications of this are staggering. If you know God, if God knows you, then God's knowledge of you, his love for you extends back forever. He, he, he didn't only love you before you loved him, he also loved you before you existed. Your destination was determined before your journey even began in your own experience. God determined your destiny back when nothing existed but God. And there's nothing that can knock you off the course that he has set you on. If you are a believer in his son, Jesus Christ. You were always going to be called and declared righteous and glorified. When Eve, for example, was talking with Satan in the garden, you had already been foreknown by God and predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, who would one day come in the flesh. When God foreknew you, he also foreknew me and everyone else who would be saved by the blood of Jesus. He didn't foreknow people in stages. There wasn't like a first round selection, draft pick or whatever, and then a second, a third, and a fourth. He didn't pick some at one time and then pick others later, maybe some walk-ons. He has loved all of his elect for all of time and for all of eternity. I'm not sure there's anything more astonishing or more humbling than this. God's foreknowledge, once we understand it, is a pride crusher. It's a pride crusher. Every one of us should be asking ourselves, why me? Why me? Why was I the object of God's love before the foundation, foundations of the world? Not, not everybody was in this special, saving way, because not everyone will be saved. So why was I? The old hymn puts it beautifully. While our hearts and our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. There was no reason in you that God chose you. 
There was nothing in you that obligated him to love you before the world was made. God chose to love you in spite of your actions, not because of them. The only thing that you brought to this relationship with, with your maker, with your Lord, with your Savior, was your sin that he had to die for. Your sin that was laid upon him. That verse from Isaiah 53 goes on to say this, We all like sheep have gone astray, each one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him, upon Christ, the iniquity of us all. God's eternal saving love for you, which God set on you when you did not deserve it, undermines, destroys, crushes your pride and gives you every reason to be humble, genuinely humble, actually humble, practically humble, humble in mind and heart and actions and words and demeanor. I urge you, Paul says in Ephesians 4, to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing one another in love. Ephesians 4, 2. You weren't looking for God's love. You weren't pursuing God or his love. You, you weren't doing anything to deserve God's saving love, but God took the initiative. He, he, he set in motion the golden chain of your salvation, starting with his foreknowledge of you. And from that moment on, it doesn't actually make sense to, uh, to refer, to talk about a moment in eternity past, but I don't know how else to say it. From, that, from the moment God foreknew you in eternity past, your future glorification was set in stone. It, God's foreknowledge is anchored in eternity. The eternity on your left. His, your glorification is equally anchored in the eternity on your right. Both ends of the chain are fastened to eternity, making them eternally fastened, eternally secure, which means that every link in the chain is unbreakable. The second link is God's predestination of those he foreknew. Those he foreknew, Paul says, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Excuse me. <coughs> the word predestined is a little easier to understand. It really is as straightforward as it seems right on the surface. It, it, it means to determine ahead of time, to decide Beforehand, Acts 4.28 is a great example of how this word is used. Uh, the context is a great, is a great uh, event in the life of the early church. In Acts 4, the believers in Jerusalem are, are praying together. They're, they're being persecuted, and so they're gathering in prayer, and, and they're, they're singing and, and praying psalms and making the place shake physically with their prayers. And at one point in their prayer, they say that God's enemies gathered together, like, like Psalm 2 says, they gathered together, they plotted against God and against Jesus in particularly, quote, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined 
to take place. Same word, predestined. Herod and Pilate and the, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, those are the ones that, that are named there in that text, all those responsible for putting Jesus to death were doing just what God had already decided would happen before the foundations of the world. Now, of course, human, decisions, uh, human decision is involved in the process of becoming a follower of Jesus. Of course. Paul's not denying that. I'm certainly not. Uh, it, but, but it was God's decision before it was ours. In fact, it must be God's decision before it can become ours because left to ourselves, we'd never make the decision to be conformed to the image of Christ. We'd never decide on our own to become a Christian, to lay down our lives, to take up our cross and follow Jesus. If you're a believer, you have made your decision for Christ because God first made the decision for you. It's... it's not that your decision, your choices are, un, are un, not real or something like that. They're genuine. You have a certain freedom to choose this or that. But God's choice is sovereign. God's choice comes first. God's choice is prior. Paul, ex, Paul expands on this in Ephesians 1. And there he attributes divine predestination to God's love. These are all Paul's words. God's love, plan, purpose, pleasure, and will. And he traces there in Ephesians God's predestining love all the way back to where in verse 4? Before the creation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. John Stott was right, as he often is, when he said that the doctrine of divine predestination, and we could add like the doctrine of divine foreknowledge, quote, promotes humility, not arrogance, assurance, not apprehension, responsibility, not apathy, holiness, not complacency, and mission, not privilege, end quote. Paul, in verse 29, emphasizes two purposes, we can call them sub-purposes, of predestination. The first purpose is that we should be conformed to the image of his Son. So he has an overall purpose, and now he's breaking it down for us a little more. That we should be conformed to the image of his Son. God's eternal purpose for you, fellow Christian, is that you become like your Savior. That's, that's, what, that's God's purpose for you. That's God's plan for your life, that you become like Jesus. The process of becoming like Jesus has begun now, if you're a believer. It's, it's begun in this life, in, in your character, in your conduct. It's begun to take shape through the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification, and, and it will be brought to completion in you when Jesus returns and transforms your lowly body to be like his glorious body. Philippians 3, 21. The second purpose of divine predestination is that 
as the, as the result of our becoming like Christ, he might be the firstborn among many brothers, many brothers and sisters, many siblings. God the Father wants his eternal son to have lots of siblings that look just like him. That's the goal, the purpose. He's got a plan for accomplishing that goal. God is renovating you and me from the inside out. Starts on the inside, but it finishes on the outside so that it's complete. So that we look more and more like Jesus all the time. Paul describes this process in another place in 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into his very image from glory to glory. I'm going to read a verse from 1 John twice and the second time I'm going to paraphrase it just to help us see the same truth from a different angle. The verse is 1 John 3, verse 2, which says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, but what will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, when Jesus comes back, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Now this time I'm going to replace God's children with Christ's brothers. Dear friends, we are Christ's brothers now. But what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, when our elder brother appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So do you hear the, the already and not yet, the now but more to come in this verse. We're already brothers and sisters of Christ now, but there is coming a day when we, body and soul, will be completely conformed to his image. The process has begun, but we look forward to the day when it's completed by God and by God alone. The, the, the family resemblance will one day be total. When you were born again in the past, God, God shared his very nature with you, with us. That's a mysterious verse in, first, in 2 Peter 1.4. It says that we participate in God's nature. That, that participation began at our conversion to Christ when God called you to himself. And through the pains and the, the processes of life, life in a groaning creation, the Lord is working out what he began in you and in me when he saved us. He's, he's molding us already into images of his son, making us more like himself. And it shouldn't surprise us that God uses suffering uses the, the groanings of our bodies and all of creation. It, it shouldn't surprise us that he uses afflictions and trials 
to shape us into the image of his son because suffering is how Jesus himself was made perfect. Perfect doesn't mean sinless. He was always sinless. He was made mature, complete in his humanity. Hebrews 2 says this. For in bringing many sons to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to, be, to, to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will sing hymns to you. He's talking to the Father. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. You see how he's one of us in Hebrews 2, 10 to 12? Because we have become his brethren, his siblings. He even joins in our praises to the Father. This is, this is glorious. These are glorious truths. We should remind ourselves every day before we roll out of bed and, and put our feet on the floor that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters and that God is committed to his purpose of making us like his son, our elder brother. What better way to begin our days than with hearts full of joy and hope and humility that comes from knowing that and believing that. I'll end with Martin Lloyd-Jones. Ultimately, the proof of a right approach to these doctrines He's talking about the doctrines of divine foreknowledge and divine predestination. The, right, the proof of a right approach to these doctrines is that you find in them the greatest urge to holiness and sanctification. In other words, he's saying if, if they lead to presumption, and so I'm, I'm good, I'm... I'm, I'm once saved, always saved, or something like that, it's all God, not me, then you have not understood these words correctly. You must find in them, if, to understand them correctly, the greatest urge to holiness and sanctification because of what God has done. He continues, If your belief of these doctrines has not driven you to holiness, you are in a dangerous condition. You are misusing them if you say, well, it is all right with me, it matters not, therefore, what I do, I am saved. No one can truly see these doctrines without being humbled. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your eternal love for us, your finite creatures. Thank you for loving us and choosing us, predestining us before we were knit together in our mother's wombs. And thank you 
for the promise of keeping us in your hand, preserving us to the end. We rely on you for this great work, and we trust in you and ask for your help to persevere through Jesus. Amen. Let's continue to worship God by giving him his tithes and our offerings.